hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This is part two of a two-part series. So if you haven't already, go back and listen to Men of Stone part one before getting any further. If you need a refresher, here it is. Thomas Francis Marr was born August 3rd, 1823, in Waterford, Ireland. His father, also Thomas Marr, was a wealthy merchant and mayor of Waterford, so Thomas Francis was educated at a couple of fine Catholic boarding schools, distinguishing himself as a brilliant public speaker before falling in with the Irish repeal movement, a movement that urged that Ireland be separated from the United Kingdom. Not long after he fell in with it, the movement broke into civil war. No, not like that, a war of ideas and tactics, with Marr landing among the Irish Confederates. No, not that kind of Confederate. After Thomas Francis delivered the Irish flag from France, the Irish Confederates got into a little scrape with several thousand police officers, and he and his pals were arrested, tried, and sentenced to death for sedition. Instead of being drawn and quartered, Marr was banished to Tasmania in 1849, where he remained until a daring and more complicated than necessary, if you're asking me, escape brought him to New York in 1852. In New York, he teamed up with John Mitchell, fellow Tasmania escapee and Irish Confederate, no, not that kind of Confederate, yet, to publish a pro-Irish newspaper. But the relationship fell apart after the attack on Fort Sumter when Mitchell, a tireless defender of slavery, fled New York for Richmond, Virginia in order to join the Confederates. There it is. Marr, on the other hand, supported the Union and dedicated himself to convincing fellow Irish immigrants to join the fight for the North. He succeeded forming the Irish Brigade, which he led as a brigadier general through some of the most important battles of the Civil War. After Robert E. Lee was humiliated at Appomattox, Marr was rewarded with an appointment to be Secretary of Montana Territory. When he arrived, the governor said, oh good, you're here, can you hold this for me for a second? And ran away to Ohio never to return, thus leaving Marr in charge of a territory he had only just arrived in. He made enemies of nearly everyone in Montana, including a host of ex-Confederate Democrats, nativist vigilante Republicans, Blackfoot natives, and a platoon of British soldiers who possibly believed he was part of a secret Irish army hellbent on attacking Canada, which he possibly was. Any one of those groups might have been responsible for his death, which took place on a Missouri River steamship near Fort Benton, Montana, on July 1st, 1867. Just as likely, Marr was sick, drunk, or sick from lack of drink, and fell from the boat and drowned all on his own. Regardless, his body was never found. Until, very, very possibly, 1897, when a prospector named Tom Dunbar discovered a petrified body in the Missouri, right where Marr was said to have taken his plunge. Dunbar eventually hauled the stone man to Yellowstone, where he charged tourists to look at it. Then a nearby entrepreneur called Arthur Wellington Miles bought it off of him and began touring it around the state. It was on this tour that a decrepit old miner identified the rocky remains as belonging to our buddy, Thomas Francis Marr. Now recognizing the solemn importance of his find, Arthur Miles 
increased the price and broadened the tour. He took the petrified general all the way across the Rockies, across the plains, to Chicago, and then on further, through the Midwest, the Atlantic coast, until he finally arrived at the crown jewel, New York City. Hey, that's where my salsa is made. If the body of a man, transmogrified by unknown means into stone, couldn't make it there, it couldn't make it anywhere. And it could not. The people of New York didn't care about General Stone Man Mar, and neither did the people of Chicago, and neither did anybody in between. The tour was a financial disaster. Because what Arthur Wellington Miles had failed to appreciate is that by the time he brought his exhibit east in 1900, everyone hadn't just already heard about a petrified man, they'd heard about five or six of them, and most of them had seen a couple too. For the last half century or so, America had been positively inundated with petrified bodies. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Men of Stone, Part 2. Positively inundated, you might scoff. How many petrified people could there have possibly been? My dear plosive listener, there were so, so many. If anyone's made a comprehensive list, I haven't found it. I reckon it'd be a tough thing to put together, since every time I went looking, I found more, and more, and more. So many that I can't possibly hope to be comprehensive here myself. I can barely hope to give a representative sample. But I can hope, and do hope, to present the highlights. At first, I thought the American petrification craze could be traced back to 1869, which is when most people who have a whiff of this thing would put its origin. But no, it's easy enough to take it back to 1862, which is what I thought for a few days until I found an incident from 1858, which I believed to be the genesis of this phenomenon for a couple of weeks until, bam, out of the blue, I found another case all the way back in 1850. As of this moment, that's the farthest back I can trace this, but I've been bitten enough times by now to know better than to say it's the actual start. It'll just have to be ours. In the February 20th, 1850 edition of the Minnesota Pioneer, there is a headline reading, Singular Petrification. The article describes a mess of petrified men and petrified horses, petrified men on petrified horses, hard to say, that were found at the mouth of the Crow River, a tributary of the Mississippi. Maybe this was meant to be a joke? It's not evident to me where the humor was, though, and I don't seem to be alone in that. See, the article was picked up by other papers, including the St. Louis Union, where it was spied by a Mr. Barnum, no, not that Mr. Barnum, who wrote the paper saying he was working on putting together a museum there in St. Louis and hoped to purchase the stone man and horses. It's in the response to that offer, penned by pioneer editor James Goodhue, that the prank gets a bit more explicit. He wrote that Minnesota's governor had all of the petrified, four horses and four riders, oh, so that settles that, moved to St. Paul and put in a new treasury-built stable. So they were unavailable for purchase. However, as a show of good faith, Goodhue put up a cash promise to help entice people around the Crow River to go searching for more. 
We will now make an offer of $50 for each sound petrified horse, mare, or geldlings, the same for each perfect petrified man or woman, and half that price for ponies and children. <laughs> Delivered in boxes on the bank of the river, ready to be shipped down to St. Anthony on the steamboat Governor Ramsey in good condition. The initial story had been brief and straight-faced, but after a line like, half that price for ponies and children, mm, the joke, the very good joke, by the way, was obvious. Not to the Philadelphia North American, though. They ran the joke details of Goodhue's editorial as fact, including the bit about the specially built stone horse stables. The Evansville Daily Journal happily mused that, a few antediluvians, embalmed by nature, would rather take the shine out of the swaddled corpses brought from the pyramids. To put an end to the madness, Goodhue published yet another story. He didn't apologize or explain how the misunderstanding occurred. Instead, he took the joke one step further to remove all doubt. As oats in St. Paul are scarce at $1 per bushel, the secretary enlisted them in the new company of dragoons, and they were shipped down on the Dr. Franklin No. 2 last week under command of Captain Garland to hunt the sacks and foxes out of Iowa. That seems to have done the trick. Mr. Barnum at least was dissuaded, and shortly thereafter opened a hotel instead of a museum. Nothing more of the petrified men or their horses was written. Eight years later, we get our second hit from another newspaper, the Daily Alta California, out of San Francisco. It takes the form of a letter from a doctor at Fort Langley, near Vancouver, named Dr. Frederick Lichterberger. What's that? Suspicious already? Well done, well done. I'm not 100% sure of whether the Minnesota horseman hoax really started out as one or not. Goodhue's response to Barnum's inquiry, again, not that Barnum, was definitely meant to be a joke, but the initial article, which attracted Barnum, again, not that Barnum, doesn't have any of the juicy, fun detail of a satisfying hoax. It's short and matter-of-fact. It might have been a sort of dispatch or something, which the pioneer printed uncritically that only grew into a joke when someone believed it. But the letter from Fort Langley is a clear, out-and-out -out newspaper hoax, and a dramatic one at that, and a long one, too. I'll try to keep the drama and jettison in the length. In his letter, dated June 19th, 1858, this Dr. Lichterberger, just go with it because the names are going to get less plausible from here, describes taking a party to some mines along the Fraser River in search of gold. Off of a hint, they left the Fraser River Trail and headed for the mountains surrounding the secluded Alouette Lake. They found no gold there and were pinned down by bad weather. To pass the time, two of the miners, Wilhelm Fiedler and Ernest Fluchterspiegel, I warned you about the names, started breaking open geodes, which surrounded their campsite. When Fluchterspiegel took his hammer to one particularly large and round geode, it split nearly in half, leaving a perfect crystalline cup, which, the two noticed, was full of about a half pint's worth of water. Not just any water, though, as Dr. Lichterberger is quick to explain. It is instead water of crystallization, which he describes accurately, believe it or not, as a liquid charged with a solution of the substance forming them, and from which, indeed, the crystals are aggregated, according to fixed laws of nature, into different geometrical solids. Taking up his crystal cup, Ernest Fluchterspiegel made a joking toast 
and swallowed the whole draft in one enormous gulp. Its effects were not immediately perceptible, writes Dr. Lichterberger. He returned towards the camp with his companion, but before reaching camp, he complained of a sense of pain and weight in the epigastric and left hypochondriac regions. <laughs> Catch that? By the time they reached camp, Fluchterspiegel was literally speechless, and Dr. Lichterberger put him in bed, applied a poultice, and attempted to feed him brandy, which he would not take. Within 15 minutes, he was dead. The body became immediately stiff, and minute by minute hardened until the skin became so tough that a hard press was necessary to make an indent on it, at which point a cracking could be heard inside. Yeah. When Dr. Lichterberger attempted a post-mortem the next day, the body was so hard that hatchets and saws were required to get inside. The blood was ossified, and most of the internal organs were like rock. The heart, on the other hand, was like a precious stone, a hunk of red jasper flecked through with ruby blood. Aside from the joke about hypochondriac regions, the letter from Fort Langley is written with almost dour seriousness. After Lichterberger describes burying the hardened body, he launches into a long and detailed explanation for how Mr. Fluchterspiegel could have met this fate. He calls upon great names of science, like Michael Faraday and Christian Friedrich Schobein, as well as great names of pseudoscience, Karl Reichtenbach and our old buddy Franz Mesmer, all to create a convincing and confusing latticework of credibility for the incredible tale. And boy, did it work! The Crow River incident was written up in just a few American papers, hardly making a dent in the popular consciousness. But Dr. Lichterberger's letter from Fort Langley was reprinted, rewritten, and summarized all around the world, even as far as the Perth Gazette in Australia. It is possible to imagine, then, that the letter provided the germ of the epidemic of stone men that followed. But we should probably be wary of that for a whole bunch of reasons. For starters, while I've only managed to come up with four of these sorts of stories before the events of 1869, foreshadowing, there's cause to believe I'm missing some. And that cause comes from the third story. On October 4th, 1862, an item appeared in the Territorial Enterprise out of Virginia City, Nevada. Yes, another newspaper hoax, but this one is special. And, unlike Dr. Lichterberger's, short. So, Let's read it in its entirety, eh? A petrified man was found some time ago in the mountains south of Gravelly Ford. Every limb and feature of the stony mummy was perfect, not even accepting the left leg, which has evidently been a wooden one during the lifetime of the owner, which lifetime, by the way, came to a close about a century ago, in the opinion of a savin who had examined the defunct. The body was in a sitting posture and leaning against a huge mass of croppings. The attitude was pensive, the right thumb resting against the side of the nose, the left thumb partially supporting the chin, the forefinger pressed against the inner corner of the left eye and drawing it partly open. The right eye was closed and the fingers of the right hand spread apart. This strange freak of nature created a profound sensation in the vicinity and our informant states that by request, Justice Sewell or Soul of Humboldt City at once proceeded to the spot and held an inquest on the body. The verdict of the jury was that the deceased came to his death from protracted exposure, etc. 
The people of the neighborhood volunteered to bury the poor unfortunate and were even anxious to do so. But it was discovered when they attempted to remove him that the water which had dripped upon him for ages from the crag above had coursed down his back and deposited a limestone sediment under him which had glued him to the bedrock upon which he sat, as with a cement of adamant, and Judge S. refused to allow the charitable citizens to blast him from his position. The opinion expressed by his honor that such a course would be little less than sacrilege was eminently just and proper. Everybody goes to see the stone man, as many as 300 having visited the hardened creature during the past five or six weeks. Like the tragedy of Ernest Fluchterspiegel, the story of the petrified man carried far and wide across the papers of the nation. This is in spite of the frankly, pretty funny, suggestion of locals volunteering to dynamite him out of the cave wall, and the subtle description of the figure's final pose, which, well, why don't we all try to recreate it now? Right thumb against the side of the nose. Oh, that's a gimme right there, huh? He's literally thumbing his nose and pulling down his eye with the other hand. Aside from its wide traction, the author of this hoax is what makes it special. It was written by a young reporter who had only recently arrived in Virginia City, named Samuel Clemens. Better known, you probably realize, as Mark Twain. The Petrified Man is Twain's first newspaper hoax, but by no means his last. And after each of them, he claimed that he had never meant for them to be taken seriously, which I think we should be a little skeptical about. Most of the hoax authors we've talked about over the run of this show, including Twain and Edgar Allan Poe, liked to say they expected everyone to get the joke. Probably if we could ask Dr. Lichterberger, or rather Dr. Lichterberger's unnamed creator, he'd say the same thing. I think these I-was-just-joking defenses are at least partially bullshit. It seems to me, after all, that the real punchline of a newspaper hoax isn't in the little japes hidden within it. It's in getting people to fall for the story in spite of the absurdities. Nevertheless, according to Twain, in his short story collection Sketches New and Old, he had a higher purpose in mind with the petrified man. He said that at the time he crafted his version, there were tons of other such petrification hoaxes going around, the authors of which were actually trying to trick people, unlike the sainted Twain, of course. Quote, One could scarcely pick up a paper without finding in it one or two glorified discoveries of this kind. The mania was becoming a little ridiculous. I was a brand new local editor in Virginia City, and I felt called upon to destroy this growing evil. We all have our benignant fatherly moods at one time or another, I suppose. I chose to kill the petrification mania with a delicate, a very delicate satire. But Twain's piece wasn't taken as satire, the ever-present danger of satire, which he chalked up to his abstruse description of the statue's mocking hand gesture. I mixed it up rather too much, and so all that description of the attitude as a key to the humbuggery of the article was entirely lost, for nobody but me ever discovered and comprehended the peculiar and suggestive position of the petrified man's hands. Whether we should believe Twain's hope-to-die promise that he had only ever meant his story to be a joke comes down to one thing. Were the papers of 1862 really so peppered with petrification stories to invite his ridicule? I've only been able to locate those two others, and the Crow River story was from 12 years earlier. 
Like I say, I'm confident my search has been less than comprehensive, but I've worked pretty hard to find other early versions, and I can tell you that when you go looking for stories about petrified men from 1862 and before, you mostly end up with reprints of Twain's supposed satire. So, even if I'm missing a few, I don't see how I could be missing so many that Twain would have found one or two in every paper he happened to grab. Not in 1862. It'd be an understandable mistake, though, because by the time he published Sketches New and Old, in 1875, stories of petrified men really were everywhere. And they weren't just fictions written up by conniving reporters anymore. They were physical bodies out in the world available to anyone to see. For a small price. The Constant is brought to you by Masterclass. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds, anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. You can learn scientific thinking from Neil deGrasse Tyson, improve your storytelling skills with Neil Gaiman, or learn conservation from Jaden Goodall. With over 100 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. I'm a pretty decent pianist, but I'm always looking to get better, especially at jazz and music theory. So I asked myself, I wonder if there's a master class for that, and man alive, was I happy with the answer. Now I am taking lessons from Herbie Hancock, one of my favorite people in the whole world. Just hearing him tinker around is worth the price of admission on its own. Masterclass has hundreds of lessons on almost anything you could want to learn, with a wide variety of topics, all taught by world-class masters at the top of their fields. You can access them on your phone, web, or smart TV, usually in nice, easy 10-minute chunks. Learn how to write anything from a book to a screenplay to a simple letter. Learn to communicate with your boss or your family, how to make a dinner worthy of a Michelin star, or just how to make really good scrambled eggs. Whatever you're interested in, there's a masterclass for you. With the holidays coming up, I've got a special Masterclass offer for you. You can give the gift of Masterclass and receive one for yourself free. This holiday, give one annual membership and get one free. Go to masterclass.com slash the constant today. That's masterclass.com slash the constant. Terms apply. When you give to charity, how much impact will your donation actually have? This question can be hard, if not impossible, to know. Most charities can't tell you how your money will be used or how much good it will accomplish. You may know it will theoretically help a cause, but how? Or more importantly, how much? If you want to help people living in poverty with evidence-backed, high-impact charities, I recommend you check out GiveWell. GiveWell spends over 20,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations and only recommends a few of the highest-impact, evidence-backed charities they've found. Over 50,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $750 million. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save tens of thousands of lives and improve the lives of millions more. And here's the best part. GiveWell is free. GiveWell wants to empower as many donors as possible to make informed decision about their donations. They publish all of their research and recommendations on their site for free, no sign-up required. They allocate your tax-deductible donation to the charity you choose without taking a cut. 
This holiday season, I used GiveWell to donate to the Malaria Consortium. For every $7 donated, a child in Sub-Saharan Africa can be given crucial preventative care, and GiveWell estimates that a life is saved every $4,500 donated. That's why I use GiveWell, and you should too. If you've never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $250 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. To claim your match, go to givewell.org and pick podcast and enter the constant at checkout. Make sure they know that you heard about GiveWell from the constant to get your donation matched. On the morning of October 16th, 1869, near a small farm, near the small hamlet of Cardiff, New York, near the then small city of Syracuse, the world experienced a small shock. Two men, Gideon Emmons and Henry Nichols, were at work digging a well for the farm's owner, William Stubb Newell. They only managed to get three feet down into the soft earth when their shovels hit stone with a clank. The stone, they soon noticed, had the shape of a very large man's foot, which might have been coincidence, except that as they cleared the mud around the large stone man's foot, they observed that it was connected to a large stone man. Within a few hours, they had unearthed their find entirely. It was a man, all right, or the shape of a man, at least, made of stone and towering 10 feet tall, hairless, posed prone as if resting, naked, with his right arm over his abdomen, his left behind his back, his knees slightly bent, with one leg curled over the other. The figure, which very quickly came to be known as the Cardiff Giant, was a source of immediate controversy. Most of the more prominent voices raised early on were skeptical ones. Othmiel Charles Marsh, president of the National Academy of Sciences and professor of paleontology at Yale, called it a most decided humbug. While John F. Boynton, a popular traveling geology lecturer, decided it was a statue carved by French Jesuits in the 15 or 1600s as an effort to convert nearby Native Americans to Christianity. We're saying... Boynton was a bit of a flimflam artist, one of those 19th century inventors whose inventions never seemed to go beyond the patent office. And Othniel Marsh, oh man, let's just say that Othniel C. Marsh is the subject of maybe my favorite story of all time, one that I've been planning on telling you all for years now, and that I'm so invested in telling exactly the way I want to that it might still be years away. Suffice it to say for now, he wasn't always the most trustworthy dude in the world. A more reliable critic was Andrew Dixon White, founder and president of Cornell University, who gave a long and unequivocal denunciation of the giant. He had a long list of well-thought-out reasons why he believed it to be, in his words, undoubtedly a hoax. It didn't seem like an ancient carving, as Boynton claimed, because it showed no resemblance to other such ancient carvings elsewhere in the world, let alone in upstate New York. Plus, as Marsh had pointed out, the figure appeared to be made from gypsum, which was water-soluble and couldn't have lasted the course of centuries in the wet earth there without degrading. 
It seemed clear to White that the figure was meant to be taken as a petrified man, not a statue. Its position, lying down in a state of twirling torsion, wasn't the sort of thing you put on a pedestal, which, White also noted, was nowhere to be found. It instead looked like it was meant to have been buried, meant to have been taken for human. Unlike most statues he'd seen, this one even appeared to have pores. But the pores did not convince him. There was ample evidence to one who had seen much sculpture that it was carved, he wrote, and that the man who carved it, though by no means possessed of genius or talent, had seen casts, engravings, or photographs of noted sculptures. Ugh, you don't have to be a dick about it, Andy. Maybe the most astute observation White made in his analysis of the giant was the circumstances of how it was found. Emmons and Nichols were hired to dig a well, which was already a tad suspicious since William Stubb Newell's property contained a clean freshwater spring that ran right by the house and the barn. The location of the well-to-be, conversely, wasn't convenient for either building. If the Newell farm needed a well at all, it surely didn't make a lot of sense to dig one where they were. William Stubb Newell, who everyone around Cardiff attested was a sober, honest, and upright man, was overwhelmed by the attention and said that he was thinking about redepositing the giant in the earth somewhere to be lost again. Instead, he erected a tent around it and charged 50 cents for entrance. People came in droves, clogging the roads all around Cardiff. A week after his first visit, White was invited to come view the giant again, this time along with other men of learning, scientists, prominent locals, and clergy. In spite of the myriad reasons to write off the whole thing as bunkum, White found that there was very little skepticism left in the crowd. One prominent man of God loudly intoned, This is not a thing contrived of man, but is the face of one who lived on the earth, the very image and child of God. A reporter on the scene that day wrote, It is not unsafe to affirm that 99 out of every 100 persons who have seen this wonder have become immediately and instantly impressed with the idea that they were in the presence of an object not made by mortal hands. No piece of sculpture ever produced the awe inspired by this blackened form. I venture to affirm that no living sculptor can be produced who will say that the figure was conceived and executed by any human being. A doctor of divinity and pastor at a large Syracuse congregation said, Is it not strange that any human being, after seeing this wonderfully preserved figure, can deny the evidence of his senses and refuse to believe what is so evidently the fact that we have here a fossilized human being, perhaps one of the giants mentioned in scripture? A woman within White's earshot gave maybe the single best distillation of popular sentiment crying, nothing in the world can make me believe that he was not once a living being. In his autobiography, White considered some of the reasons why people might have been prone to believe in the giant's authenticity. And in so doing, he shows a tremendous lack of imagination. His points in the giant's favor are all logistical and circumstantial. Stubb Newell didn't have the means or ability to create the statue, nor the guile to execute a hoax, and there was no way such a massive thing could have been brought into Cardiff and buried there without notice. Last of all, he admits the thing really did look quite old. We'll handle all of that eventually, I promise, but first I think we should consider some of the larger, more philosophical reasons for belief. Let's begin with the time of its discovery. 
Our first three newspaper hoax stone men pop up in 1850, 1858, and 1862. The Cardiff Giant is found just seven years after Twain's story in 1869, but by golly, was that a long seven years. A lot of things had changed in the 1860s. Evolved, you might even say, especially in one particular stream of thought. Biblical inerrancy. The idea that the Bible was the true, unadulterated, and blemishless word of God was always around in one form or another within the Christian church, but it gained considerable currency after the Protestant Reformation. Among the Catholics, the church itself and the Holy See were the final arbiters of truth. Protestants didn't have that. The Bible was the closest thing to truth available, and so, not very gradually, it became fully true to some. With the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment, inerrancy only continued to grow, sometimes in the face of scientific resistance, other times with the support of scientific inquiry, designed to discover literal truth in the Bible's passages. There's a view of history that says religion and science were always adversarial, and that inerrancy was a knee-jerk response to improving scientific knowledge. That view is pretty fucking reductive and should be greeted with a dump truck worth of salt, but if there was one time during which you could make a convincing argument for it, it would be the 1860s. As it happens, this notion is commonly known as conflict thesis, and it was put forward most prominently by none other than Andrew Dixon White, who somehow fails to see its import in the Cardiff Giant story he was a part of. What White forgot to note in his recall of the Cardiff Giant is that it came about at a moment when biblical inerrancy was careening across America at its most rapid of breakneck paces. There were two primary causes. One was the Civil War, which saw Southern Christians clinging to biblical literalism in a last grasp justification for the moral abrogation of states' rights. States' rights? Is that... Wait, no, what am I thinking of? The thing the Civil War was about? States' rights, right? Yeah, Southern Baptists saw that the Bible condoned states' rights, like in Genesis chapter 9. After the flood, Noah got deep in the bottle and one day passed out drunk and naked. He was discovered in this sorry state by his son Ham. Because Ham saw Noah naked, Noah cursed Ham's son, Canaan, to a life of states' rights. And in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 5, Paul wrote, Servants, be obedient to your masters. The curse of Ham could be read as somehow figurative, or at least ethically confusing enough to be ignored, and Paul's letter a bit of metaphor or anachronism to a different time. But to slave owners, they were proof of the righteousness of the peculiar institution, as long as you took the Bible literally. The other major driver between Twain's Petrified Man and Cardiff's actually began a few years before Twain reached Nevada. In 1859, Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species, which, maybe you've heard, kind of upset some people. As the clear, convincing, and empirically sound logic of Darwin spread, the reaction from many Christian quarters was to retreat into ever-stauncher belief in the Genesis story, which meant, according to Genesis chapter 6, that there should have been giants the offspring of the, quote, sons of God and daughters of men, which were the proximate reason God flooded the earth, sparing Noah, who got drunk, got naked, got seen drunk and naked, and cursed Canaan to slay states' rights. 
In one sense, people were pulling lots of giants out of the ground in 1869, but they were mostly mammoths, saber-toothed tigers, and the many dinosaurs discovered, many by Othniel Charles Marsh. Upstate New York had been one of the birthplaces of modern paleontology. In the early 19th century, workers digging the Erie Canal stumbled almost daily upon the bones of giant mastodons and fossilized monster fish, which only served to further confound the biblical literalists. The giant discovered in Cardiff did exactly the opposite. It's worth noting, too, that even by American standards, 19th century upstate New York was especially decked out with woo. In Rochester, 1844, the Fox sisters, a pair of young farm girls, had birthed the world of spiritualism by creating knocking ghosts out of their cracking toes. Around the same time, John Humphrey Noyes set up the Oneida community, best known today for its silverware, but at the time, for its utopian dream of sinless communal living and polygamy. Speaking of which, Cardiff was only about 40 miles from Hill Cumorah, where Joseph Smith said he was visited by an angel who revealed to him the Book of Mormon on a pair of golden plates. Coincidentally, John F. Boynton, that geology lecturer who claimed the giant was a Jesuit statue, was one of Smith's first disciples, a member of the original Quorum of Twelve Apostles, who was eventually excommunicated and joined with a group of fellow dissident Mormons who formed a splinter sect called Church of Christ, which preached that Smith was a fallen prophet. All of which is to say that if there were a perfect place and a perfect time for the 1869 Cardiff Giant, it would be Cardiff, 1869. There weren't enough hours in the day to accommodate all the people who came to see the giant. Every 15 minutes, a new curious clutch shuffled into the tent, shoulder to shoulder, as the last shuffled out. In spite of the carnival barking patter at the lead-in, the inside of the tent tended to fall into a hushed silence. Men removed their hats, children were held tight, the trek to Cardiff was like a spiritual pilgrimage, and the giant, the holy relic at its end. People stood, craning their necks for a better look, but gently, so as not to seem vulgar. They stared at every literal pore they could, at the ribs, the face, locked in an expression almost neutral, but with the faintest trace of a smile at the corner of his lips. They looked at the penis, too, but gently, so as not to seem vulgar. How could they not? The giant penis of a giant. Giant even for a giant, said some, while a few men dissented. It wasn't that big, they said, as women stood nearby with expressions almost neutral, just the faintest hint of a scoff. In charge of the display was George Hull, Stubbs' brother-in-law, from nearby Binghamton. George Hull was an ambitious man, but so far his ambitions hadn't amounted to much. Like Boynton and so many other ambitious 19th century Americans, he'd tried his hand at a number of get-rich-quick inventions, but none of them worked out. He mainly made his way through the making, selling, and shipping of cigars, a business that sounded simple and stable enough on paper, but had already proven otherwise. Two years earlier, he'd sold 10,000 cigars on consignment to another of his brother-in-laws, who promised to reimburse him quickly. He didn't, and eventually George Hall had to track him down in Ackley, Iowa, to try to salvage some of the broken deal. So, 
why Stub Newell had chosen Hull to man the giant's tent wasn't immediately evident. What was clear was that he was in charge and finally getting rich like he'd hoped. In little more than a week, the Cardiff giant had attracted not just the attention of the curious and the faithful, but also the attention of businessmen, who sensed in the endless teeming throngs happily throwing their half-dollars Hull's way a grand opportunity. Five men out of Syracuse formed a syndicate for the purpose of purchasing a stake in the giant and moving the scheme up to the next level. In charge of said syndicate was David Hannum, a banker and literal horse trader who would eventually become the basis for the protagonist of Edward Noyes Westcott's best-selling 1898 novel, David Harem. David Harem is an almost unreadable book with a flimsy excuse for a plot hot glued onto what otherwise amounted to a businessman's guide to getting rich. Unlike the works of Horatio Alger or Andrew Carnegie, which stressed upstanding morality as the key to success, David Harem espoused the philosophy of its near namesake, a twist on the golden rule, stated by Hannum as, Do unto the other feller the way he'd like to do unto you, and do it first. Hannum and his syndicate bought Hull out of 75% of the giant's ownership for a clean $30,000, more than $600,000 in today's currency, and in early November of 1869 had the 3,000-pound stone man shipped to Syracuse, where the crowds would have more space to crush together. And crush they did! The scale of the giant's popularity in Syracuse was exponentially greater than it had been in Cardiff. It was so in demand that the New York Central Railroad added an extra stop outside its door. It was so beloved that the Cardiff Giant got write-in votes in the Syracuse municipal election. With all the attention, though, came more scrutiny. It was in Syracuse that Marsh delivered his denunciation, and soon after that that John Boynton reevaluated his original stance. He no longer believed the giant to be an ancient statue meant to fool pagans. It was a modern statue meant to fool Americans. As skepticism began truly creeping in, so too did someone else. A Mr. Barnum. No, not that Mr. Barnum, but the real McCoy this time. P.T. Barnum himself. He came to Syracuse to check out the giant. He couldn't say for sure whether it was real or fake, but then again, he didn't care. What was definitely for real was the endless line of eager customers. Barnum approached David Hannum and his syndicate, offering $50,000, 20 more than they'd bought it for from Hull. But Hannum declined. They were raking in money and expected to continue, so they told Barnum where he could stick his 50 k to our growing list of advice for time travelers, we can add, don't cross P.T. Barnum. The savviest, most ruthless huckster of the century, perhaps of all time, wasn't about to let a simple no thanks dissuade him. He hired an artist to go undercover as a tourist, visiting the Cardiff Giant in its tent and surreptitiously forming a wax model of it. In Hannum's advertisements for the Giant, he had published its exact measurements, down to the length and width of the nose. Together with the artist's wax interpretation, Barnum had everything he needed to make his own Cardiff giant. As Hannum began touring the original down the Hudson towards New York City, Barnum had his copy set up at a museum near Central Park, where Barnum earned more money than Hannum had dreamed of. P.T. Barnum never said his most famous quote, 
there's a sucker born every minute. In fact, it's not clear who first coined the phrase, but one strong contender is David Hannum, who might have said it in regards to the thousands of New Yorkers flocking Barnum's counterfeit Cardiff giant. Hannum filed a lawsuit asking the court to put the kibosh on Barnum's fraud. The judge agreed to issue an injunction, but only on condition that Hannum proved his exhibit was real. Bring your giant here, and if he swears to his own genuineness as a bona fide petrification, you shall have the injunction you ask for. It was looking bad for Hannum and his syndicate. On December 10th, it got worse, when George Hall, troubled tobacconist and brother-in-law to Stub Newell, issued a confession. Two years before the giant's discovery, George Hull had paid a visit to Ackley, Iowa, to try to collect on the 10,000 cigars he'd given his other brother-in-law on consignment. While he was there, he got into a fight with a local Methodist minister named Reverend Turk. Turk was a biblical literalist and argued that the giants mentioned in Genesis 6 must have been real. Hull was flabbergasted. An atheist, he came away from their debate steaming, wondering how anyone could be so gullible. Then it dawned on him. The better question wasn't how people could be so gullible, but how many people could be so gullible. And with that cunning thought came the plan. It was a highly involved scheme. He would bury a petrified giant of his own design at his brother-in-law's farm in upstate New York, but to pass it off as the real deal, he needed deep and circuitous secrecy. He had the gypsum block pulled from a quarry there in Iowa, where he told the seller he planned on making a statue of Christ with it. Then the block was toted to a Chicago stonemason named Edwin Burkhart. Whether Burkhart knew he was taking part in a scam or not is disputed, but the reason he was chosen for the job is not. Hull understood that if he had the statue carved so far from its eventual resting place, it would be harder for anyone to draw the connection. He had the newly carved giant boxed, shrouded, and shipped by train to New York, and then by wagon to Cardiff. He avoided main roads and traveled as much as he could by night. He arrived at Newell's farm on November 9th and unloaded it into the barn with the help of two hired hands. Two days later, he returned and he and Newell buried the giant themselves. Then, all they had to do was wait. Which they did, for a full year, before Newell ordered Emmons and Nichols to dig a totally superfluous well at a very particular place on his property. Newell had played the baffled, innocent farmer with a clot and George Hull had swooped in magnanimously to assist his beleaguered brother-in-law in handling the crowds. The rest, as they say, was history. With the confession widely disseminated, the crowds for both the phony and the phonier giant began to die off. Mark Twain wrote another story, in which the ghost of the giant went searching for his resting place in Cardiff, but accidentally got lost in Barnum's museum. The whole thing had become a joke. The original giant ended up in a Massachusetts barn, although it was pulled out for a brief and unsuccessful showing at the 1901 Pan American Exposition in Buffalo. Today, it's on display at the Farmer's Museum in Cooperstown, New York, with a tent meant to look like the one it had always been shown in. 
except that at the door there is a sign which reads, World's Greatest Hoax. The Constant is brought to you by University of California, Irvine, Division of Continuing Education. Today's economy is highly competitive, and UCI-DCE can prepare you to stand out. According to data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, continuing education correlates to higher income, it opens doors to networking opportunities, better job opportunities, and career progression. UCI can do all of that and help you find direction, find a passion, find your future. UCI-DCE has been serving lifelong learning and skills development needs for the local, regional, and global community for over 50 years. They offer over 80 career-focused programs in business, leadership, tech, education, engineering, health sciences, law, finance, and more. Some programs can even prepare individuals to sit for industry certifications or provide continuing education credit towards recertification. Courses are offered on a quarterly basis and non-formal application is required to enroll. Learn from instructors who are practicing professionals with extensive relevant industry experience and gain practical skills that can be applied immediately on the job. At UCI-DCE, enrollment is open to everyone. So go to ce.uci.edu slash learn now to learn now. Again, that is ce.uci.edu slash learn now or follow the link in the show notes. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs to match you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, and convenient online environment. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash the constant. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility. I love how Shopify has the tools and resources that make it easy for any business to succeed from down the street to around the globe. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. 
Gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash the constant, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash the constant right now. Shopify.com slash the constant. By the time George Hull confessed to the scam, the Cardiff giant had ignited imaginations around the world, not to mention produced a fortune for its owners. And soon, similar stone men started crawling out of the petrified woodwork. Some of them were scams, others were pranks, practical jokes, but nearly all of them were also something more, attempts to be part of something wonderful, to conjure a corner of the incredible. There's so many petrified men stories from the 1870s and on that it would be downright impractical for me to try to tell them all. But there are a few which are just too good to resist. Starting on September 16, 1877, when William Conant and his son Will Jr. were out in the hills near Beulah, Colorado, digging for fossils, when they happened, like Emmons and Nichols before them, upon a stone foot. They came back to the site with a local geologist, Lewis Allen. According to the Colorado Mountaineer, Allen had discovered a number of interesting finds a few months back, which had inspired Conant and Son to search the area. But what qualified as interesting finds for Allen were petrified cacti and fruit and a single fossilized sea turtle. What the Williams Conant had on their hands was a seven and a half foot tall petrified man with a tail. News spread quickly, and the press soon gave the stone man a name, Solid Muldoon, a reference to a song about a popular wrestler, William the Solid Man Muldoon. With the help of an assistant named George Davis, oh no, I'm sorry, I, I need to emphasize that harder. With the help of a mysterious assistant calling himself George Davis, the Conants set up their own exhibition tent in Pueblo, where they charged 50 cents a head to view it. One of the earliest viewers of Solid Muldoon was, incredibly, P.T. Barnum, who just so happened to be in Denver at the time of the discovery. What a coincidence. Barnum very publicly announced his belief that Solid Muldoon was the genuine article and offered Conant and Davis $20,000 for the find, 30 grand less than he'd put up for the Cardiff Giant, but still a tidy sum, which Conant and Davis refused. They toured their solid Muldoon around Colorado and into Nebraska with great success before deciding to take it to, where else, New York City. Unfortunately, unbeknownst to William Conant and his assistant George Davis, the jig was almost up. Oh no, I should say the mysterious assistant calling himself George Davis. Because shortly after reaching New York, George Davis was unmasked as none other than George Hull. The creator of the Cardiff Giant had done it again. 
After that hoax was exposed, Hull had slunk off to Elkland, Pennsylvania, where his imagination once again got rolling. He wanted a redo, but different this time, and better, too. Instead of trying to trick fundamentalist Christians with the Nephilim giant, he set his sights on his fellow Darwinists, with his very own missing link, complete with vestigial tail. The Cardiff giant, carved subtractively from a block of gypsum, had been too obvious a forgery. They'd had to dapple the pores with a pinned mallet, and the tool marks were too readily identifiable to craftsmen. For the solid Muldoon, Hull created a more elaborate giant. He experimented with a kiln in Elkland, mixing up a proprietary mortar, which included bits of meat and bone, which he felt gave a more organic and naturally aged appearance. There was only one drawback. It was expensive, and Hull's largesse from the Cardiff scam was running low. He needed funding to get his new petrified man out of Pennsylvania, to get it planted in the earth, and to set up its discovery. So he approached the one person he knew who might be able to make it happen. P.T. Barnum. Barnum agreed to help Hull. He had an old associate in Colorado, William Conant, who could play the William Stubb Newell part in the sequel. What was great about Conant wasn't just that he and his son Will Jr. were good at the game, but that he had another son, Fred, who was the editor of a local newspaper, the Colorado Mountaineer, and would be able not just to uncritically publicize the discovery, but soften the ground with advanced stories about other fossils in the area, petrified cacti, fruit, and a sea turtle, all of which Hull had created and which Conant could get his friend, local geologist Lewis Allen, to find. Once they got it in the ground, they waited for Barnum to show up in Denver so that he could make a generous offer on the solid Muldoon, drawing more attention and credibility. It was a really, really clever plan. Nearly foolproof. But fools don't go down easy. In addition to all of the planning and logistics and such, Barnum had also forwarded Hull $2,000 in exchange for a 75% stake in the venture, which he named the Giant Company. You might imagine that the incorporation of the Giant Company before there was any giant to be found might have gotten the secret plan in trouble, but no, that wasn't the issue. The problem was that Barnum's $2,000 wasn't enough to get Hull over the finish line. He needed more money, not just to enact the plan, but to keep the secret part. See, every time somebody learned about what was going on, they had to be brought in and bought off. And since Hull wasn't liquid, the only thing he had to offer for people's silence was a slice of his steak. What these new conspirators didn't realize, however, was that Hull's steak was already chopped up into pieces. When Hull promised 5%, he didn't tell them that he meant 5% of his 25%. Hull had promised E.J. Cox a much larger share, half of the earnings, by which he really meant an eighth of them. When Cox saw the money rolling in, and so little of it rolling his way, he was pissed and went to New York ahead of Solid Muldoon to tell the Times who George Davis really was. The scam collapsed virtually overnight, and George Hull finally got out of the petrified man business for good. Two years later, a very similar petrified man was discovered on the grounds of the Toganok House Hotel in New York. And when I say similar, I mean that it too was cast of disgusting stuff to try to simulate what a human body turned to stone might look like. In the case of the Toganok giant, that meant cement, 
eggs, iron shavings, and beef blood baked in an oven and then buried near the hotel by, unsurprisingly enough, the hotel's owner, who literally cooked up the scheme to get press for his business. The fascinating thing about the Toganok giant is the way it was at once believed and disbelieved. Toganok Falls is less than 60 miles from Cardiff and had a long enough memory to recall that ordeal. So even the very first press coverage of hotelier John Thompson's find and his plan to put it in a tent and charge access was skeptical, reminding readers of what had happened the last time around. Yet, even with this warning, people flocked to Toganok House Hotel to see the giant. And even after the scam was exposed by a drunken lackey, and even after Thompson came clean, some still refused to believe that it was a fake. So that Thompson and his sculptor, Ira Dean, had to build a second, smaller petrified man in public view to finally convince people it was their handiwork in the first place. In November of 1886, a different kind of petrified man story hit the papers. One that seems, to me, a bit more curious and more than a bit more tragic. That month, Thomas B. McCormick Jr. fell ill in Philadelphia, and before he died, made his final will and testament, in which he asked to be buried in the family plot in the graveyard at Old St. Mary's Church. This wasn't quite as simple a request as it seemed. Thomas Jr. was the last remaining member of the McCormick family. His sister, Lizzie, had died just a week earlier, his mother a few months before, and Thomas Sr. a year before that. If I had to guess, I'd say that tuberculosis had hit the McCormicks, but that's neither here nor there. The tricky thing was that when Thomas Jr. said he wanted to be buried in the family plot, he really meant it. The family only had one plot, in which all three of his family members had been interred. First dad, then mom, then sister. When Tom Jr. passed, there was no more room at the inn, so to speak. The other bodies would have to be exhumed and the grave deepened to accommodate them all. So that's what was done. The grave was dug up and the coffins removed. Lizzie's, then mother's, then dad. Except that dad's coffin refused to budge. They called in eight able-bodied workers to try to lift it, but even that wasn't enough. When they cracked the box open, they were greeted by the visage of Thomas McCormick Sr., still perfectly intact, recognizable, and transmuted into stone. What's fascinating about this story is that there was no tent erected, no turnstile fee, no exhibition. After a suitable number of witnesses were called in to attest to the petrification of Thomas McCormick, everybody heaved toe, pulled the stone man up, dug the grave deeper, and threw the whole family back in without any further fanfare. Tom Jr. among them. And that was that. The stone men were not always made of stone, and they were not always men, either. According to the Valparaiso Star, a young woman named Mary Ann Greer disappeared from Wantanah, Indiana in 1851. Against her parents' wishes, she had been dating a young and scrawny ironworker and locals assumed she had run off with him in the night. Under suspicion, the young man fled the area and was never seen again, which only seemed to confirm his part in Mary's vanishing. But then she was found, in 1891, at the bottom of a bog iron pit. Forty years later, 
her mother dead, one of her brothers killed in Gettysburg, her other siblings grown up and moved on, half a lifetime later, Marianne Greer was still perfectly preserved in youth. Her skin turned to tawny red iron. Or so said the Valparaiso Star, but there's no record of Marianne or her family and no account of her body outside that one article. Even in the age of more complicated scams, newspaper hoaxes still lived on. Another petrified woman was found, or reportedly found, three years later, near Walkerville, Illinois. The Carrollton Gazette hypothesized that she was the abused wife of an antisocial forester who lived in the area some decades earlier. The story is vague, even by the standards of these sorts of stories, and should be dismissed with prejudice. But it must have been more than a simple newspaper hoax because the petrified lady toured around western Illinois, mainly stopping in Jacksonville, and earning its, ahem, discoverers a pretty penny for the few months before interest waned and receipts dropped off. Which is the surest trend within the trend. By the late 1880s into the early 1890s, there seemed to be a new stone body every day from Deadwood, South Dakota, to Waco, Texas, to Tuskegee, Alabama, to Evansville, Indiana, to Leroy, Illinois, which might have been the same as the one from Chadron, Nebraska. That one deserves a bonus episode. Please remind me, patrons. There was even a second one in Denver, Colorado, which played a small but important part in an earlier episode about a different hoax, an episode of this show entitled The Rest of the Story. And more and more and more. I doubt that there's a single state in America that didn't have at least one petrified man of their own. But Montana's take on the genre stands above them all because it wasn't just some random miner or missing farmer or bygone French explorer or even a prehistoric giant. As far as I can tell, Montana 1899 is the first time that a petrified man was purported to be a known public figure. General... Thomas Francis Marr. When Marr splashed into the inky dark of the Missouri River on July 1st, 1867, he was the most famous Irishman in America. And when the Montana miner put his name to the petrified man on display in Butte, Montana, he was probably still in the top five. I imagine that Arthur Wellington Miles felt that fact would put his petrified man on the shoulders of the other stone giants. There's no chance that Miles wasn't aware, to some degree or another, of the others. The Cardiff Giant, at the very least, was one of the largest and most notorious scams of the century, a shorthand for both grifters and the grifted. Arthur Miles was well-connected, well-off, and well-read, so it's safe to surmise that while he might not have known every last copycat out there, he must have been aware of some of them. He also knew that, there in Montana, the body of General Marr was practically a petrified money tree. What he didn't know was the trend line. Any stories Miles might have seen about touring tent displays would only have bolstered his confidence in his own upcoming tour of the East. If the petrified lady had been successfully shown in Peoria and another in Valparaiso, if owners had made fortunes in Buffalo, New York and Macon, Georgia, and even some place called Sabina, Ohio, that only made it seem an even more sure thing that he could drive General Marr through the country from Chicago to New York two cities with huge Irish populations, not coincidentally, and come back home rolling in greenbacks. 
but the trend line gave a different projection. When P.T. Barnum had made his initial offer on the Cardiff Giant back in 1869, he'd been willing to spend 50 grand to nab it. Less than a decade later, Barnum only bid 20,000 on Hull's second stone giant. That's a steep decline right out of the gate, even before you remember that it wasn't made in earnest, since Barnum already had a financial stake in the solid Muldoon. He was only trying to improve its credibility, and to him, a credible-sounding offer was less than half of what he had put up back in New York. The financial market for fake person statues continued to decline from there. The petrified man found near Deadwood was sold for a full tenfold decrease from the solid Muldoon offer, just $2,000, although maybe some of that cut rate could have been due to his missing foot. On December 12, 1890, the supposedly petrified body of a giant Native American was supposedly, I know I don't have to say supposedly at this point, but it's hard not to, was supposedly found in a California marsh and brought to Fresno for display at the Central Hotel. Its owners had grand ideas for it, indicating that they'd be touring it around the state, the region, and finally making their way to Chicago in time to be a main attraction at the 1893 World's Fair. Things didn't go according to plan, by which I mean the so-called Cantua Man never even left city limits. It was sold to a drugstore for a cool and lowly $1,000. The perpetrators of this hoax, not happy with the result, soon produced a Cantua Woman to go along with him, and then a Cantua Boy to round out a petrified nuclear family. That might have been sensational enough to get them back on track, except that the boy's leg broke off in public view before they could get it to the store, exposing that his insides were made of plaster of Paris. The woman was likewise exposed, and before Cantua Man could be examined, he disappeared from the drugstore, never to be seen again. The Daily Alta, California, claimed the hoax had been perpetrated by the same man who carved the Cardiff Giant, but that hoax expose appears itself to be a hoax. The Petrified Lady of Western Illinois gives one of the best snapshots of the marketplace. In the spring of 1894, she was put on display at the Moose Lodge in Jacksonville, Indiana. Originally, the price for entry was 15 cents a head. Three days into the exhibit, it had to be cut to 10. Demand hardly increased. She was sold to R.S. Few, the owner of a shooting gallery in Roodhouse, Illinois, for just $150. By the end of that same summer, he had sold her off again to an unnamed buyer for an undisclosed and likely even lower price. Even with the celebrity and mystery of General Marr at his fingertips, and a full-page article in the New York World that swore he'd been proven authentic via the new technique of x-rays, the people were unswayed and unimpressed with Arthur Miles's wonderful petrified man. If Miles was still unaware of just how saturated the market was when the masses failed to line up in New York, he found out soon enough. On the East Coast, he went to visit his father, Daniel Curtis Miles, who told him he had seen a similar petrified man on sale in Massachusetts for a dollar and six bits. The thing that really propels the petrified body of General Marr above all the other hoaxes is the clever patience it required. 
I don't know whether Miles was originally behind it or if he really did buy it from the mysterious Tom Dunbar, but remember that neither one of them started out saying that it was the body of Mar. It was just a petrified man, like so many others. And yet, it was obviously meant to be Mar. It fit his description and was found in exactly the same spot he went missing. So Miles and possibly Dunbar or some other perpetrators in on the grift sat back and waited for someone else to make the identification. Even today, it's enough of a coincidence to make you wonder, just a tiny bit, whether it was the real deal. Whether, in spite of the total scientific impossibility of it all, Tom Dunbar really did unknowingly discover the ultimate fate of Thomas Francis Marr. But the same description that led that unnamed miner to realize who the body belonged to is enough to confirm that it wasn't a body at all. I mean, even beyond the fact that human remains can't be petrified. What I mean is that the petrified Mar didn't just resemble the missing general, it was a downright likeness. Apparently, whatever mysterious petrification process had played upon him in the Missouri River had also perfectly preserved and transmuted the ropes around his hands and his uniform, and his hair, and his beard, perfectly quaffed. Like Thomas Marr himself, no one can say what precisely happened to Montana's stone man. Miles brought him back to the state, where he continued to be a small part of county fairs. But Miles sold off the exhibit after World War I, and whoever it was that took over the tour appears to have given up around 1922. At that point, the stone man just completely disappears from history. And so, too, did the wider trend of stone men. It had already slowed to a trickle before giving out a spectacularly absurd death rattle. In January of 1926, near Ladysmith, Wisconsin, the Rusk County Jr. wrote that a pair of loggers claimed to have cut down a basswood tree that split open as it crashed to earth. Inside, they discovered a perfectly preserved man, right down to his buckskins, coins, a musket, and a paper identifying him as Pierre d'Artagnan, the Comte de Montesquieu, who had died Marshal of France in 1725. The byline of that article read, Rusk County Liar. An obvious joke, made more obvious by the fact that it was 75 years old and had already been told dozens of times. And yet, in 2009, the Wisconsin Historical Society had to issue a press release hoping that people would finally stop writing and calling to ask whether it was true. There is still a sucker born every minute. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound. That is a wrap on The Constant for 2021. It's a very different kind of year than previous ones. We spent a lot more time on larger, deep-dive kinds of stories, from forensic evidence to death rays to history denial movements, lead dating and leaded gasoline, the longitude problem, and now this one. How did that work for you? I know there are some people who like bigger, longer stories and others who want stuff a little more compact and narrative-focused. I'm always trying to find that balance, so let me know if I did... I'm sorry we didn't get to do any holiday material this year. I meant to, but I got too smitten with this story and ran out of time. I hope it was worth it. 
We'll be back after the holidays on January 11th, and I think we're going to start the new year with another longer series, but it's a very different kind of one than we've done before. I think it'll be suitably weird. You know the deal by now. If you want to support this show financially, go to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up. And if that's a bridge too far, do me a favor and tell a friend to listen. The single biggest problem with podcasting, which no one seems able to solve, is what the industry calls discoverability. When you find a YouTube channel you like, YouTube takes note and throws all kinds of stuff at you that it thinks you might like, sometimes with disastrous results. But the only way people hear about podcasts is if they're told about them. So if you know someone who you think might like this show, you are the only way that they will get in. And you're also the only way to help me grow larger and more stable. We're part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, home to Subtitle, who's back with a new season about our adventures with languages. The first episode, out now, traces the story of that little horizontal line, the hyphen, from its beginnings in ancient Rome to attacks on its use. By the likes of Woodrow Wilson and John Wayne, the hyphen has divided opinion, if not words. Find it at subtitlepod.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks to everyone who has helped, contributed, recommended, reviewed, and just plain listened to the show this year. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where I'm wishing you a safe and happy holiday season. This has been The Constant.